Theorem 1 is the leading innovation and engineering firm for the Fortune 1000. We design, build, and deliver enterprise-scale technology solutions and are very excited to present the Breakthrough Podcast, an ongoing series where we interview technology leaders to share their experiences and perspectives and discuss what's next in tech. I'm Allison Dean, VP of Operations at Theorem, and today we are talking with Drew Martin, currently Senior Vice President, Chief Information Officer at Jack in the Box, which is celebrating their 70th anniversary this year. Drew sent me this quote from George Bernard Shaw, and I thought it particularly poignant given our current times. The reasonable man adapts himself to the world The unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. So hello, Drew. What does that quote mean to you? Be unreasonable? I think it just means that there's times in life when you want to accept things as they are. And other times, especially when you're doing digital transformation, that you have a vision of how you think it should be. It takes a lot of unreasonable persistence to make that happen. So it was uh, the thought behind that quote. I like it. Can you walk us through what a typical day look like for you? And people are answering this in sort of two ways, pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, current today. Yeah, well, actually, there's a cadence that I find a lot of leaders have adapted this, and it's kind of a cadence during the week where at the beginning of the week, you're checking in with your directs and seeing what's on their plate, what barriers are in their way that you can help them, what bad news you need to know about. You usually don't spend a lot of time on the good news. And I find out what all the issues that are out there. And then as I do that during the day, I'll take notes about things that are cross-functional that other team members need to know about. And then usually we'll sync up on a Tuesday, lift it up and say across the team, how's everything going? And what are those barriers or points of maybe lack of alignment where we need to get into that? And then spend the rest of the week trying to address all those things. So it depends on the day of the week. But I typically also find, especially with COVID, I'm a bit of an early bird. So I get up pretty early and get ahead of my emails and other things usually, sometimes so early that I turn off the send feature because I don't want to frighten people. But then I'd say by mid-afternoon, I'm done too. So (laughs) I don't know if that'll stay when we get into going back to the office. But I had to go in the office the other day, and I found it was really inconvenient to shave and shower and actually commute. So (laughs) I totally get it. So you've worked for some of the most well-known brands, PepsiCo, Sony, and now Jack in the Box. What is the most crucial aspect of a company's IT strategy? I think the most crucial thing is to get the alignment right. I think sometimes you can have some great technical ideas that just aren't really aligned with what the business outcomes that people want and the business priorities. And sometimes you've got uh, tremendous aspirations from a business point of view in terms of what things could mean in digital, but you might not be resourced or capable from a technology point of view. So I'd always rather have a good strategy that has good alignment with amazing execution than an amazing strategy. I think sometimes a strategy can be a little bit overdone or overemphasized as opposed to culture and execution. So in a 2017 interview that I read, you mentioned that franchise-owned restaurants were a focal point for the business that year, and thus the importance of robust IT services were of necessity. Have priorities shifted in 2021? Is the strategy still centered on franchise operations or have things changed? What I learned a lot about in Jack in the Box is the investor community. 
So uh, before I got to Jack in the Box, the investor community came up with a model and said they have a hypothesis, which is another way of saying this is what we want you to do. And their hypothesis was that there's a much better reliable cash flow if we refranchised our restaurants. So refranchise all the company-owned stores. And so that was a real culture shift. I think executing that was pretty straightforward in terms of finding franchisees that wanted to take on more stores and everything. But the cultural aspect of realizing that is 95% franchise system, the only way we're going to be successful is with successful franchisees. And so in a company-owned environment, we could be a lot better about controlling our destiny. But in this model, we had to start looking at our franchisees as customers and making sure that, like any customers, that we understood what their needs were, if they were happy or not, what their satisfaction was, and make sure they were viable and profitable. That was a focus in 2017. This year, we've actually, for the first time, surveyed the franchisees and said, are you happy? Across a bunch of different dimensions, and we brought in a third party to do that get that more quantified about it and execute a strategy to make sure we're really focusing on the franchisees as kind of an ongoing cultural evolution. Can you talk to us a bit about the first large-scale project that you spearheaded? A pretty big one was at Sony Electronics. I was the CIO for the U.S. Electronic Division, which is about $13 billion entity at the time, before we did battle with Apple. (laughs) If you like supply chain like I do, I was a little bit of a kid in the candy store. You know, we had stuff coming in from Mexico, TV manufacturing. We had computer manufacturing for bio laptops being done in San Diego. Sony cameras from Tokyo by air. And then we had a bunch of other lower cost items like media coming over by boat and some being manufactured in Alabama. So it was quite a complex supply chain and with a very dynamic demand pattern, talking to the best buys of the world. There were four different ERP systems. So every time the business said something like, hey, we want to make this change, the conversation with IT kind of started at a million dollars in six months. That was the opening of the conversation. So the transformation essentially was about being able to make those changes to supply chain. If they said, hey, we want a distribution center in Chicago instead of Pittsburgh, when we had four ERPs, it was, well, that's at least six months and probably a million dollars. We put an SAP by the end of all that. It was a weekend of changing some tables. It was about a $130 million project, and I was heading that up. And I think a lot of people were expecting that we were going to find $130 million in headcount savings, which is a lot of people. But actually, what happened was the value of being able to capitalize on a market opportunity, like moving the warehouse to Chicago or changing pricing dynamically, which again, used to be a couple-week exercise. The speed-to-market benefits were really what justified all that spend and all that transformation work. And to piggyback off of that, what's the most recent large-scale project that you've implemented? I think the other project that I would talk about is just a jack-in-the-box. When I got there, we were talking about the scheduling systems for the restaurant workers. And they literally told me that the system that we're using was in Foxborough. And this is three years ago. And we had a kind of elderly consultant who we had a retainer. And I always want to make sure he was feeling good and healthy because he's the only one I knew the Foxboro code. We were able to go to a SaaS-based cloud model. And it's a project that had actually been gone on for a while at Jack in the Box because I don't think we had addressed properly the change management aspect of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it was one of those projects that was trying to replicate the old functionality instead of saying, no, there's a new functionality that's actually better. The catch is, though, you have to change your behavior. It's uncomfortable going from one system to another system, but 
involved in technology on this project that the goal is to seamlessly and transparently replace the legacy system. You have to say that out loud a few times to yourself. So the best we're going to do on this project, the best possible outcome would be that no one would notice anything changed. And we will spend lots of money and lots of effort and we'll declare victory by saying no one even noticed there was a change. I think if you go into projects saying that we're going to get benefit, but things are going to have to change. Systems are going to have to change. Processes are going to have to change. Jobs, job descriptions are going to have to change. I think you have a better chance of success than just saying, hey, this is a great new system that other people have had success with, and we should be able to put that in and good things will happen. What's your temperature around purchasing off-the-shelf software versus building custom internally? I think early in my career, I was working at Pepsi-Cola back in New York. And on the customer side, we were going into retail stores with truck drivers, with handhelds. We were really pushing the envelope on that. We were customizing Windows operating systems. We were custom designing hardware. That process of selling into a gas and convenience store, getting the right price, and understanding the dynamics of the other inventory competitors in the store is super sensitive and a competitive advantage if you do it right. So at the same time, at the same company, we also were proud to have the world's oldest version of PeopleSoft. (laughs) The point being that where you really want to differentiate yourself to your customer from the competition, then it makes sense to take on some of these things like custom in-house development. Then other things that are not particularly competitive, like ERP systems or HR systems, We typically would not go custom and have standardized applications and really just do the bare minimum on those. So it's not a one-size-fits-all. It really depends on the business outcome. The times where you've decided to do something custom in-house, do you ever leverage outside consultants for that? Or would you just bring on more employees or use more of your internal team to handle that? That's a really good question. When I got to Jack in the Box, one of the things I wanted to be clear about is from an organization point of view, what is the core competencies of the organization? And to your earlier question, one of the things that I thought we need to do was be a professional services firm because we are actually providing professional service to franchisees and they actually have to pay for it as part of the franchise agreement. So we were lacking some of those professional services skills. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we wanted to be clear on what is our core development skills. And to answer that question, one of the things you have to be aware of is how certain you are that that's a long-term skill that you need. And typically what I've done in my career is for new emerging technologies that you're not sure about, leverage third parties. And if you get to the point where that innovation that you leverage a third party to make happen, you say, yeah, this is really something that's going to be around for the long term. Then you do the math and it makes more sense to bring those skills in-house. But sometimes you try different projects that are pushing the envelope and you're not sure. And then that doesn't work out that well, well, then it's a much easier conversation to execute your out clause with a third party than to have to let people go who are employees. Okay, so to transition from that, you almost have two customers because you have your franchise owners as a customer and you have the customers of the franchisees, right? So you have like this dual layer of customers. So that means you have two opportunities of data and feedback. So I guess I'm going to be asking this in both aspects. What actions have you taken in response to the franchise owner's feedback and also the customers of the franchisees? That's a great question. And we trip up on it enough ourselves. We kind of standardize the terminology as guest of the restaurant okay. is a customer and then the franchisee is a customer. So we actually don't say customer that often. We more often would say the franchisee, and that's implied one type of customer and another is a guest. And I think in both cases, there's a classic CRM opportunity. 
they tend to be different, sometimes require different processes and different solutions to satisfy the need. So an example of franchisees, we have just over 100 franchise operators, but that's a very deep, critical relationship, obviously. We certainly want to understand our billing to them, their legal documentation and their commitments on development. Everything we're doing from a supply chain in their restaurants, the building and layouts of their restaurants, every ticket that gets called in from their restaurant. So there's only 100, but there's a tremendous amount of information that we need to collect and manage. And they have a lot of touch points in the organization. So we even want to know if someone had a good conversation with a franchisee or they were talking to me about technology, but they asked a question about a new product coming out in a window that I'll be able to use a system to communicate that to product marketing and vice versa. That's a very different type of CRM than the millions of transactions we would have every year from our guests. And historically, that guest has been not much more than a credit card number. So this credit card, which we assume belongs to the same person, came back for another visit this month, and we could kind of derive some conclusions from that. But the opportunity now is obviously to be a lot more one-to-one marketing with each of those guests, leveraging some new technology. So it's a very interesting spectrum on the two CRMs because there's great opportunity in both, but they're very different need sets. Mm-hmm. and potential solutions as well. Mm-hmm. What has surprised you the most about Jack in the Box's journey? I think what surprised me when I took the job, if I can be candid, I said, well, what a great company. It's been here 70 years or almost. I hope it's going to be interesting enough and be dynamic enough because I like digital transformation. I like change. And when I got there, we had another brand called Qdoba. And again, the activist investors had a hypothesis that maybe we should sell them. So we sold them. Then they had another hypothesis that we should consider going private. And so we had to go through a whole process to see if anyone wanted to take us private. And then they had another idea that we should be at five times debt to EBITDA ratio. And to do that, we would also have to securitize our debt. And that took another couple months to do all that. And while that was going on, our franchisees were also struggling with some economics and unhappy with some of the direction from the brands for various reasons, right or wrong. So that became a public lawsuit. It led to a lot of, obviously, consternation at the board and with the franchisees, as well as turnover at the management level. So I was wrong. This company is doing great today, and I think that's maybe just a sign of what you need to do to survive 70-plus years, is to be resilient through these changes and make sure that you have a culture that can sustain these kind of headwinds and tectonic shifts and all the things I mentioned, as well as COVID. What is the culture like at Jack in the Box? The culture is very much take the work seriously, but don't take yourself seriously. <laughs> and I also think there's a very natural diversity and inclusion. If you think of Jack, he's kind of a weird guy with a big white head and pointy hat and a quirky sense of humor. So we all try to emulate that and be accepting, but also do it in an offbeat, fun way. That's a lot of what the culture is. But with all the changes we're having, too, we're trying to update some of the cultural elements to be relevant to our guests, our franchisees, and the employees that we want to attract in the team. Okay. So how is Jack in the Box using technology to differentiate itself from other food chains? I'll give an example as we kind of think that through. McDonald's is pretty public about the technologies that they're pursuing. They've acquired a voice recognition company called Apprende, and they've also taken an equity stake in an AI-based personalization engine. They've gotten lots of investment in digital menu boards and at the drive-thru. So you can see all this stuff. 
There's also very public information about the franchisees of McDonald's who are really struggling to pay for all that technology. On the other end of the spectrum, and I've actually spoken to the CIO at Chick-fil-A, which is obviously in our space and doing very well from an annual unit volume of each restaurant. And they have handhelds, but they don't have digital menu boards. They don't have a lot of that kind of technology. What they've done is take their dining room experience of great service and really very welcoming, polished set of associates in the store. So they've picked a technology that's appropriate for them. I think in our case, we're figuring out what that means for us and what's the right on-brand engaging in Jack's humor, Jack's voice. And so a lot of people are heading down that path of frictionless guest experiences and one-to-one engagement. So I think we're similar in that way. What's differentiating is that Jack is a different type of brand. And so the humor that we would use, the voice that we would use, those kind of things are what we hope to be differentiating, as well as the other things that are relevant to our brand, which is we're the only folks who have anything on the menu any time of day. So that tie then into some of the technical things that we'll do, which I have to manage technology for the 2,300 restaurants that are open 24-7. Mm. So there's slightly different technologies that we have to use than someone who can only be open 8 to 10 hours a day. Did you say that there were 100 franchisees? Because I know there's over 2,000 locations. So these franchisees, they own quite a few. Some will own up to 50, 60, 70. And then there's a bunch that will just own one. Right. Back to your point around CRM, we kind of have to figure out how to cater to that one that has a certain set of needs. And then these others who might have 100 restaurants, but they have scale. They have CFO, they have an IT person and everything else. And so how do we tailor the professional services and technical solutions that we provide right. to someone who's just running one restaurant with his family? And then someone who's got 100 restaurants, a lot of scale. Like, How do you adapt that? Chick-fil-A has a different rule, which is we can only own one. So that kind of creates a different dynamic, good and bad, but our strategy is a little different than this. Okay, so since Jack in the Box pioneered the drive-through, which I did not know this, what is on the cutting edge now, in your opinion? What's innovating the typical fast food drive-through experience? It's a really interesting space for me because digital disruption has come so late to the QSR because it's inherently very physical. You either drive up or you walk up and you speak your order to someone at a drive through window or behind a register. And so we have this kind of background mobile app and, hey, you notice some of these folks come in our restaurants or use this credit card that says DoorDash on it? What's that all about? That was a couple of years ago, right? To where we got to the point where we said, hey, this is a thing. And then with COVID, it really accelerated a lot of that technology. So we're all figuring that out, what exactly it means, what are some of those new technologies. But again, it's very much around personalization, one-to-one marketing and dynamic and engaging and things like loyalty and in-app delivery and not only any product, any food 24-7, but anywhere too. And you can get it through our app or you can go DoorDash or Uber Eats or Postmates or Grubhub. You can get it that way too. And then are there other kind of non-traditional possibilities, airports, college campuses, things like that. And there's a lot of other exciting things around dark kitchens. Oh, yeah. So dark kitchens, meaning we're only in 22 states. So there's a lot of open road for us to expand. And in some markets, we could go there without having to build a traditional restaurant with a drive through and everything else. We could just do a delivery-only location. And people sitting in different markets that where we traditionally haven't been can pull up the delivery app and realize, 
holy cow, I can get Jack in the Box now in this location where they hadn't seen a restaurant around and we didn't have to go through the same process of all the permitting and building and the long lead time it takes to bring that kind of market presence in a place where we're not in yet. All right. So for these dark kitchens, would that be corporate owned or would you ever allow franchisees to own a dark kitchen also? That's a good question. There's also a third path that's license. So there's companies that create dark kitchens and you do licensing agreements with them. And I think market by market, you have to be sensitive to the franchisees. Right. Maybe if they're in an adjacent market or there's any kind of overspill, we want to make sure we're taking care of our franchisees. So there's that kind of approach as well. And then there's licensing and franchising together that can be possibilities as well. So a lot going on in this space. And I think we're uniquely positioned where we haven't saturated the 50 states. There's a good book called Thank You for Being Late. Sometimes with innovation, it pays to be late. So we might take advantage of being late to some of these markets. Mm, I love that. So Melanie Hildebrandt, she's the former SVP of corporate IT at Sony, has this question for you. What do you think the most important aspect is of a future state CIO? It's a great question from my former Sony colleague. <laughs> I think you hear from Gartner that there's composable IT, and maybe a few years ago it was being able to manage a development team and know the technology as well. And I think it's much more about orchestration now. So you're orchestrating solutions from third parties, kind of like we were just talking about a minute ago on sometimes you're licensing, sometimes you're getting a SaaS solution and building APIs into it. And sometimes you have your own project team. Sometimes you're staffing up with a partner. I think we used to get away with being functionally siloed in the old world when operations would work, the kitchen and the restaurant and marketing would do the marketing thing and et cetera, et cetera. And now from a seamless guest experience, all those parts have to work together and integrate. So Again, from a technology leader, orchestrating the solutions, the partners, business arrangements, the executive sponsorship, the funding into your question around what's a good strategy that's aligned with what the business is trying to accomplish. And I think we certainly can get off track sometimes if we're in love with one technology over another or have found a solution and start looking for a problem that can get you off track. So I think that orchestration of really being in tune with what is the business strategy and the mindset and the mood and the trust level of the stakeholders sets a clear direction and there's alignment there. Then orchestrating the solutions from various potential sources, internal, external, SaaS, partners, et cetera. Got it. What is the biggest lesson that you've learned from being a leader in technology? I alluded to it a little bit earlier, but I think back to being unreasonable, to really have a vision for what are the outcomes that you want to come away with, to start with the end in mind. There's this outcome that we want to have. And if you can really get everybody aligned around that outcome, things can fall in line technically, organizationally, process, financially to make that happen. So the famous quote is, you can get a lot more done if you don't care who gets the credit. A lot of times it's not about myself being a visionary. A lot of times it's about teasing out from the business strategy and talking to the gardeners of the world and the industry experts and staying in touch with different solutions and collaborating and saying, hey, based on everything that we're hearing in the business dynamic, hey, here's something we might be able to do that is different than what we're doing today. And it would solve these problems or go after these opportunities. And if people can start envisioning that with you, then you can start as a leader to set out on a path to make some good things happen. And again, I think the converse of that is when you start from the technology out mm -hmm. or you have it in your head that, hey, I'm a technology leader, so I know what the cool thing that is that we're going to do. 
and try to get everyone to see it your way. I think that those are where you get off track. So again, that orchestration and teasing out the vision from the organization. And I'd say there's other times you have to be patient where that vision is not so clear. And in the times of Jack in the Box, as I mentioned, you know, when it was hold that thought, Drew, on what you were asking because these investors want to do this thing or the franchisees just filed a lawsuit, so not ready to talk about that initiative. So knowing also when to wait for the moment to come, mm-hmm. when people are open and ready to endeavor to some kind of change. Sometimes you can also try to force the issue without reading the room mm-hmm. about whether the organization has the gumption uh, to take that on. Yes, I have certainly been in rooms like that from time to time, and I have had to maybe silence myself a bit. Okay, how has your leadership style evolved throughout the years? One story I've told some folks that I've mentored is my first manager job. I got hired as a manager and another person got promoted into manager. And I had been a programmer. I became a manager in a technology that I didn't actually know. So I had this atrocious imposter syndrome. And like, how am I going to manage when I don't even know the technology? And my peer at the time was an amazing programmer at technology. And I felt entirely inferior to him because he was such an amazing coder. He could sit with his developers and say, hey, here's how I'd structure the code. And you might want to try this, that, and the other. And I'd be like, I can get pizza tonight if you guys are staying late and put together some schedules and what's getting in your way today, everything okay at home. And I overcompensated by being very supportive and over-communicating. Hey, I don't know how to code, so let me go find out the answer to that question, that blocker, and come back and see if I can solve that. And I was really floored after six months, and people started saying, you're a really good manager. And I said, really? I said, what about the other developer manager? They said, oh, it's a disaster. He's rewriting everyone's code in the evenings. (laughs) Not very empowering. So I've had a lot of conversations with technical people over the years, mentoring conversations where... When you're a people manager, at least half your time is going to be spent supporting, communicating your people. When you first become a manager, it's stressful because you used to crank through your days getting a lot of work done. You know, you asked me the question earlier, and I have five siblings, and they're all professionals in different respects. And they laugh at me because I said, I really just talk to people and coordinate and communicate all day because I think I'm a programmer, but I'm not. More and more, what I've learned is the communication and the support of your team. And then as I've gotten more involved with being a corporate officer and C-level boardroom stuff, then it's also, like we said, reading the room and trying to understand what's the vibe, mm-hmm. you know, what are we trying to get done here and what are we capable of doing? Some projects, and you've probably been on this project too, where you said, okay, everyone, I've been at this project for a year. Everyone write down what you think success is on this project, right? And you get back a different answer for every piece of paper. So, so really spending the time to make sure that there is that alignment. We're all committed to this outcome. And we all have a role to play in that outcome. How do you encourage innovation within your teams? I've done a lot of scaled agile methodology stuff. And I think one practice in there is both retrospectives to kind of look back and say what's working, but also to build an innovation time. It's very tempting in the name of efficiency to just kind of cram in all the prescribed work that you know needs to get done. So if the sprint schedule is you three sprints and the fourth sprint is Either contingency for the stuff you didn't get done, you're supposed to in the first three. But if you get that all done, then you have this time to innovate. And at the same time, knowing the industry that we're in, my prior company, Lytix or DriveCam, that's a technology company. So we had an R&D budget and we had data scientists. And that's a whole different thing, managing R&D 
where it has really come up with an idea and don't worry just yet about the market. And, you know, we're not going to sell it or market it yet. We got to figure out like what are some of the innovations that we can do. So understanding where we are in that spectrum and what kind of business we're in. Innovation can mean a lot of different things. We've done a ton of innovation just in terms of how we collaborate during COVID and being virtual and all that. So it doesn't have to be totally about crazy new technologies. It can really just be about adapting for what's needed at the time. And Jack is a great innovation culture. Our building is called the Innovation Center. But what it really refers to historically is innovating with new food products. And so we have an amazing process to innovate with testing the guests' reaction to product, visualizing how they visually respond, what they say about it based on their categorization, et cetera, to really bring innovative food products to market. We're trying to replicate that from a technology and process innovation because we have great DNA as it relates to food innovation. So this is where we can leverage that in the culture and transfer it to process and technology innovations, again, all towards the brand and company mission. Mm. All right. So you brought up food innovation. So now I need to ask you what your favorite, most recent jack-in-the-box menu item is. Well, we do have a fish sandwich every Lent. That's actually really good. In some places, we can get it all year. I always look forward to this time of year when I can get uh, the fish sandwich anytime I want. And then I always have to have curly fries. That's one of the things we say in the French fries of life, be the curly fry. <laughs> or have the curly hair. Yes. <laughs> good answer. What do you want your direct reports to remember you for? You subscribe to like a servant leader kind of evolved to the communication and support of my team and holding them up to do good things. And it's a win-win. If I can support them on the projects that they're working on and in their career, Mm -hmm. then they're more effective, they're more engaged, they're more productive. I look better, you know, by the results that we get. When I have my updates with my team, I ask them four things. Whether they run the business kind of day-to-day things, a major issue I need to know about. But usually that stuff I say, I can't help. I just need to be aware. <laughs> so I said, let's talk about the projects. And same thing, if there's an issue, I need to be aware. Sometimes I can help if it's an alignment type of thing. or resourcing, I can help. Then I say, what about strategy? What are the issues? And then I talk about what's going on with people, their team and them. And I say, it can be on the back of a napkin, just to structure a conversation. But then they catch on that. I don't really want to talk about the first tip. I can't really help. It's just like, if something's well enough, I need to know about it. And it might be, if they ask for help, I can help. But for the most part, I can't help on those two. But a lot of times they'll raise questions about strategy. I'll say, wow, that's a really good question. I have to go ask some other people, get back to you. But it's an important question because they're the folks actually trying to make the strategy work. And so if they have a question, we need to answer it. And then, then on the people side, are we taking care of your star players? Are the folks who are in the middle, are we kind of supporting them? And are there any issues of folks that need to, they're in the wrong role or not happy or something's going on in their life that we need to be aware of? And then for them personally, hey, how are you doing? How am I doing? You know, just to connect on that level. If you invest that time week in and week out, but you get great results and great connection and you build this trust. And that's when you can really start to move fast is when without having to wonder, hey, can I trust if I tell my manager this or can I trust them to get something done that they said they were going to do. Then you start moving a lot faster by investing that time. And it's amazed me when they come and take over some teams to find out managers aren't having weekly one-on-ones. I live in a position where someone came and said, oh, this person's leaving. I said, when's the last time you had a conversation with them about their career? Oh, we do it every year. I'm like, every year? 
And I don't know why they're leaving. You have to have that. So hopefully to answer your question, people see me as a servant leader that connects with them and, and builds trust and also takes the work seriously, but not myself. Hopefully. Oh, I like that. All right. So let's zoom out. We don't have to. We can focus on the food industry, but we can also talk big picture innovation if you'd like. Where do you see things progressing? I'm always pretty focused on the guests or the experience. And there's so much stuff that's experience-based, meaning if you start from the guest experience coming into Jack or ordering food through third-party delivery or mobile app, if you're really focused on that experience, there's still a long ways to go, in my opinion. The same thing as employee experience, from onboarding to performance reviews to check-ins, you know, that's an experience. And if you... Mm -hmm. Give your guests great experiences and your franchisee customers great experiences and your employees great experiences. And every worker in the company, you approach it from an experiential point of view. I think it's where you get great results. And so there's a lot of amazing technologies around that. And I also say sometimes there's always the cool and creepy spectrum <laughs> you know, where if the technology recognizes me, and I know that they recognize me, I'm not consented to that. If the technology can serve up a better experience, then that's great. If it's taking my personal information and serving up an experience that I don't want, that's really creepy, I'll reject that. So I think on the positive side, there's so much more room, and that's in every industry, to talk about some of people call it CX or customer experience, but employees are customers, everyone's a customer. So to think, think through experience, and there's a lot of amazing technologies that kind of marry up data and browsers and AI and other things that can really and a lot of value to everyone's life and everyone's experience. So I think that's across industries. And if I look back at my career, that's been a running theme. How can you make people more productive by giving them better experiences to do their job with less friction and uh, more convenience? So to punctuate our conversation for today, can you speak about a breakthrough that you've had recently? That one project that I had talked about at Jack in the Box, where we had kind of converted over finally to a different labor scheduling system. You know, the prior effort before I got in the jack-in-the-box, they attempted to do that. And as I mentioned, they were trying to create the new system to look like the old system so that no one know there'd be no issue changing over systems, which is a fool's errand, as we know. But at the same time, I said, how are we going to avoid that? And to the point we talked about the composition of the franchise community, I picked a small, single restaurant operator. And I said, let's just try it. And they didn't even tell anyone. I said, just try it. And then after we got that, after a month or two, he was happy with it. And he said, oh, Steve likes it. Steve's pretty happy with it. And said, so, well, wait a second. How come he got to go first? You know, it suddenly became this different mindset than, hey, if you're coming here with that system, I'm not going to sign off on it until it works just like the old system. Suddenly it's like, well, Steve got it. So <laughs> I want it. And he said good things about it. And tying it back to not just that Steve likes it, but hey, he got these benefits, but Everyone's afraid of change. So Steve said the change wasn't that bad and it was worth it because I got X, Y, and Z. And that was a fundamental shift from just, hey, this is a new system we're trying to put it in. Let's put it in. So really getting that buy-in, a lot of times I say technology is the easy part. It's the people and human behavior and resistance to change that really has to be solved. I said a lot in the software selections, you know, I said, we're at the point on the short list, every one of these are going to work. Any one of them. We could pick anyone at this point. We know that. So let's pick one. Let's move on again to the real work of changing behavior. I like it. Thank you for all the insights today, Drew. That was juicy, like a jack-in-the-box burger. That went by fast. That was fun. Thank you for streaming The Breakthrough, brought to you by Theorem. 
The show is managed by Michaela Berman and designed by Erica Suri. Please reach out to Elizabeth Miyaki for press inquiries. I'm your host, Allison Dean. Till next week.